The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk. Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to a special Christmas edition of The Wealth Show. I'm here today with Caroline Hug. Caroline, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, John. How are you? Are you I'm looking forward to Christmas holiday? Very much so. We're here in our Christmas jumpers and we're really sort of excited for, for the Christmas break, I think, as I'm sure all you listeners out there are as well. Um, <laughs> so today we're going to discuss some of the big stories of the year. And I think the, the one that we'll have to kick off with first is the big... Rathbones and Vestec merger. Yes. And I mean, Caroline, you've been looking at this a lot, but let's take a step back. Why was that such a big deal? I think it was such a big deal because basically Investec Wealth and Rathbones together now have a combined kind of assets under management of like 100 billion, hmm. which makes them now the second largest wealth firm within the UK after SJP. And yeah, two big names coming together and and under one label. So it, it's a pretty big deal. Obviously, the, it was one of the, the biggest stories of the year. Um, but you covered quite a lot of stories sort of in and around that deal. And before the, the deal even sort of went into play, there were several key staff leaving from Investec prior to the deal came into play. Could you speak a little bit more about your stories around that? So I became interested in the story when I saw that the previous CEO, Barbara Ann King, she left Investec Wealth after only mm. eight months. So then I just kept noticing, covering stories of people who had left. A lot of people had predominantly left the Investec Wealth's Cheltenham office. Yeah, I ended up speaking to a few people and there seemed to be a sort of change in strategic direction when... Kieran Whelan, who was, you know, the previous CEO before Barbara Ann became CEO. Yeah. And he had this banking background, which was said to be at odds with kind of the investment managers at Investec. Things became a lot more target orientated. Um, they were benchmarking themselves against SJP. Okay. The process was becoming a lot more centralized, which many investment managers, particularly the more senior ones, weren't happy with. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Do you think that was maybe one of the core aspects, that centralization move? I think it did because even though it benefited kind of the younger talent, those um, people who had been working in as Investec for, you know, a lot of years felt like their relationships with their clients were becoming less personal and the change was kind of instigated too quickly to the point where allegedly the South African CEO... Mm had a meeting with all the investment managers to say, look, I, I acknowledge that these these changes have been implemented a bit too quickly. Um, one would assume that those wealth managers that did leave wouldn't have been particularly happy if they'd joined Rathbone. So that's sort of more, more of a centralised model as well. I mean, yeah. where, where were they sort of going, the, these people that weren't, weren't particularly happy, maybe these older wealth managers? Yeah, well, no, it's interesting because, so I actually covered a story where a bunch of people from Investec had actually gone to Rathbones and this okay. was prior to the deal being announced. I, I'm not sure whether or not they knew, but it must have come as quite a shock. 
um, once they figured out that Investec and Rathbones were merging. And that's like remains to be seen what the effects of this will be. But in terms of where people were going, a lot of these investment managers were predominantly going to Close Brothers Asset Management, which kind of offers or prides itself on having this more kind of in bespoke investment proposition. Yeah. I mean, we've covered Rathbone's uh, chief executive, Paul Stockton, and sort of his his plans for the business and, and why Rathbone's bought Investec. Maybe you could shed a bit more light on that. Yeah. So I think, as you mentioned, both of them have kind of very similar strategies. They both kind of have various offices that complement one mm. another. They do have, you know, I think it's around like 22 or 23 um, offices across the UK, but, but you know, which you signified with a rather good math in one of your stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but yeah, so it remains to be seen whether there will be any redundancies from the offices that are overlapping. But I think you know, Paul Stockton was talking about some of the changes that he is planning to implement. And I suppose, sort of at the, at the core, he he was suggesting that. Um, tech was one of the big reasons that, that they came together. I suppose that's that's always something that's listed in Rathbone's results, that they, they want to be innovative in tech. And I suppose mm. that must have been an impetus be behind targeting Investec, that they thought they, they were somewhat aligned there. Well, that's what he, he said yeah. anyway. Yeah. I think this is interesting because Paul Stockton has now said that um, Investec Wealth is going to be moving its kind of investment managers will be using the Rathbones platform, whereas Rathbones will be using Investec's kind of technology for financial planning mm. and distribution. Rathbones itself is working on the first phase of its client lifecycle management system. So it, can't, it's, it does remain to be seen, and this is often a problem with these mergers on migrating tech platforms and migrating investment managers and financial planners onto separate tech platforms. But it, it seems to be something that we will cover. Maybe. Sure, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that, that merger goes over the next year or so. I'm, I'm sure there will be quirks to it, like with with any merger. But let's let's move on to sort of the big regulation of the year, mm. which is, of course, consumer duty that came into play over the summer. Um, obviously, that affects all of financial services. But what impact from your point of view has consumer duty had on, on wealth firms in particular? Consumer duty is obviously a big obstacle for many wealth firms, where wealth firms have to make sure that you know they provide fair services to investors. And this culminated in a dramatic Dear CEO letter um, last month, where the regulator said consumer duty expectations were not being met and clients are being pushed into products that are not offering value for money. And so the FCA has warned it will be taking more action in the future. But the real question is, has this impacted any big wealth firms? Yes, seemingly so. So I think the one to really highlight is SJP. Where consumer duties really take an effect is SJP's decided to to remove exit fees from a lot of its products. That meant that its share price um, had a big blow earlier in the year. And I suppose uh, that you could say that the, the, the regulators sort of working in it on on that basis. I mean, and then there's other there's other elements of it. I think 
it's definitely hit smaller firms as well. They yeah. per, per, perhaps have less resource and it, it's probably cost them a lot more money or, or cost them a lot more time, whichever way you want to look at it. There's also, you know, you, you can you can look at Raymond James, for example, that's had some restrictions on it by the regulator. A lot of people in the industry are saying that that might be related to consumer duty as well. So there, there is an impact, but we're definitely in early days at the moment. Let's move on to another big story in the industry, and that's been sexual harassment. Mm. So the big story has been Chris Bonaudi um, and his the allegations of sexual harassment against him. They sort of came to light in, in, the, in the FT earlier in the year. It's worth noting that he has denied all these allegations. But in, in your view, how has that story impacted the industry as a whole, Caroline? So following both kind of the OD allegations and then we've also had the recent scandal with CBI, the city launched an inquiry called Sexism in the City um, and that looks into the barriers that women face. So they've had three inquiries so far and, you know, the first one had people like Helena Morrissey in it, mm. who's chair of the Diversity Project and she was speaking about an initiative that she created called the Safe Space Initiative which is kind of like her own whistleblowing hotline where people who've experienced or witnessed harassment can can come forward. We've also had, you know, the Aviva CEO, Amanda Blanc, kind of speak about her own experience of sure. discrimination and, you know, what she's doing herself to make sure that her Aviva remains diverse. Sure. I mean, I mean that, that sort of hit the headlines last week, I mean, especially in sort of some of the nationals where she was saying that she wouldn't have any senior yeah. non-diverse hires at the insurer had she not approved it yeah i mean what do you think about that yeah i think it was the thing is is it was quite it was received in a way that met like made it sound as if she was just kind of looking to have these diverse hires but i think what she suggested is she wants to remain to ensure that her business does remain diverse, so wants to make sure that the recruitment process mm. itself has diverse hires in the first place. And it's not a question of, you know, as, as what she said, I think it was like people calling up their mates and being like, hey, you know. I think, it's, yeah, it's trying to avoid that jobs for the boys kind yeah, of exactly. atmosphere, really. I think also it's, it's, it's worth saying that this must be a, quite a, a senior level. I mean, Aviva is a mega insurer and yeah. has over 20,000 employees. It's pretty unlikely that yeah. she would be able to approve every single exactly. hire. You know. And she has managed now to fulfill her, I think it was a 40% women in senior management role. Maybe it was across the entire business. But mm. either way, she's managed to fulfill that this year, which is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty good turnaround. Yeah. And also the FCA, going back to sort of uh, sexual harassment in the industry, mm. the regulator, the FCA has sort of launched a consultation paper. Could you say what exactly that entails? Yeah. So honestly, in my opinion, it doesn't really entail much. It makes clear to fund firms that bullying and sexual harassment pose a risk to healthy work culture. Mm. Um and it also kind of is, so it's basically telling fun firms, you know, this does, you know, this is our remit, this is included in our remit, and you should be expected to report instances of sexual harassment and kind of goes into which instances count as severe sexual harassment. Yeah. It also includes requirements to for firms to develop diversity and inclusion strategies, and that involves collecting and reporting data on 
ethnicity or disability, which isn't very well documented sure. across yeah. the industry. Yourself and uh, reporter Olivia Bibble did um, a really fantastic podcast earlier this month, uh, which highlighted how the city handles sexual harassment. And what did you find out from that? We spoke to a few kind of key um, people within the industry, mm. including HR heads. We spoke to the FCA and we also spoke to employment lawyers and the journalist that, that originally broke the Crispin Odie story. Mm. But I think a key thing that we found out was the idea of HR departments, for example, um, not having that degree of impartiality. I think it was um, the Aberdeen HR head, Heather Inglis, said that the investigative team that deals with um, complaints of sexual harassment, ultimately, they they are looking to protect the organization. Mm. And that does feed into what Helena Morrissey was saying during the inquiry about bad apples being dismissed yeah. quietly and then being put back into the system. And then these people were not being reported on the FCA register. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's an, sort of the, the idea that the HR department is fundamentally protecting the business. I, I think that's a tenant of HR that probably everyone sort of understands, but maybe yeah. is not articulated. And I, I think from my point of view, it was quite surprising to hear someone in such a senior HR yeah. position actually saying that. Yeah. And I thought, you know, even the fact that, you know, she's now advocating or Aberdeen are now advocating for an independent champion um, to create that impartiality during the investigative process is a step forward um, to to make sure, sure that, you know, the, the process is fair. Well, that, that was the thing, actually. I think she was actually being quite honest and saying this is the, we're, yeah. we're trying to make a, st a step forward. It's, it's, it's easy to criticize. Yeah. I think. I, yeah. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, you know what? And something else that I found interesting was even though these firms like Aberdeen, like Janice Henderson, um, like Quilter, who we spoke to, they all welcomed further guidance from the FCA on, you know, what instances of sexual harassment should be reported and what shouldn't be. And again, this is quite controversial subject for the FCA. We spoke to Alicia Kudzirski, mm. um, who is the head of DEI, and they talked about the regulators' remit, stating that ultimately they're not the police. Mm. And it's up to firms to to use their judgment and and figure it out because they can't be pol policing every single one of these firms. I do think that the sad thing about it, which was kind of the title of our podcast yeah. and the conclusion, is that ultimately firms are looking to the FCA for further guidance. The FCA is telling firms that, well, you know, it's up to you. And so you have this, as we said, this game of hot potato yeah. um, where kind of the responsibility and accountability for dealing with sexual harassment kind of bounces from person to person. Anyway, I think now we should move on to what's kind of emerging in the wealth management space. It's worth mentioning the, the rise in popularity of private assets yep. and specifically on something called LTAFs. But I'm, yes. I'm just wondering, so what is an LTAF exactly? The, the LTAF has been the buzz product of the year. LTAF actually stands for the long-term asset fund. And so this is essentially a semi-liquid fund structure which enables investors to gain access to things like private equity, private credit, um, real estate. It's in its nascent stages. Mm. So at the moment, you've got a couple of players in the market. You've got Schroders, who are the first to enter in, um, BlackRock and Aviva, who have launched products 
But it's worth noting that these products are only for the pensions market. They're not in the wealth space yet. Mm. Um, that's coming next year. So that looks like Schroders will be launching one in Q1. That's what they, they, they've said to me. But fundamentally, this should be a way for wealth clients to, to gain access to a part of the market that's a bit difficult for them at the moment. Yeah. You've got investment trusts already that, that do cover it. So they've, you've, you've got private equity investment trusts, private credit investment trusts, um, real estate investment trusts. But I think there's a perception that there's a challenge with them because they can the share prices can be a lot lower than the net asset value essentially. Yeah. So, so there's an, a, an element of risk there that some investors might not like. And there's a sort of element of the new LTF structure that, that might be helpful for that and um, might be more, more suitable for sort of long-term investors. There are, of course, risks as well. When you say private assets and, and sort of semi-liquid or open-ended, there's perhaps this sort of fear of Woodford that, yeah. that kind of goes along with it. What happens if people can't get the money out? You know, there's, there are liquidity concerns there. So there's going to be a lot of conversations next year about how it actually works, um, especially sort of for retail investors. And why are kind of asset managers chasing private markets? What's happened to yeah. the 60, 40? I think last year people were laughing at BlackRock who were saying, I think it was like, they were saying, you know, the new portfolio is a third fixed income, a third mm. equity and a third alternatives. And and people were unsure about sure. that. What's changed? Asset managers have really been struggling to make money this year and last yeah. year. Fundamentally, uh, private markets are a way of gaining a better margin. Perhaps I'm being a little bit cynical here, but private equity is famously based on a sort of two and 20 model where you charge a 2% annual fee and a 20% performance fee. And you just can't do that in public markets mm. because the competition is too much. There's also potential for, for alpha in inverted comments yeah. in private markets because it's it's just not covered in the same way. It's not covered by analysts in the same way. The markets are less efficient techni technically. So there is potential to make money there, but there's also potential to make huge losses. But yeah, in terms of sort of management fees, performance fees, there's a big potential in, in private markets because it's it's new and it's kind of undiscovered. And you've talked a lot about, you know, the risk. Um, yeah of this, how has the, the regulator viewed the rollout of, of private markets to a broader audience? Right. So the big thing on private markets is valuations. Valuations can be incredibly tricky in, in private equity, private credit. You can get a, a third party to value the assets. But fundamentally, there's not a, a sort of daily traded stock market, which kind of gives you the price of public equities. You just don't have that. It's what someone tells you it's worth. And it's only worth something if someone's willing to buy it, yeah. right? It's, it's like the property market. You could, you could sell your house for X amount, but it's only worth it if someone buys it for that amount, yeah. really. What the FCA is doing is it's doing a review of private market valuations at the moment. And it's following on from the SEC in, the, in America as well. They've been, been doing a similar thing. So they're looking at how these assets are valued just to get the best out, outcomes for consumers. And a lot of that is coming on the back of its being pushed into a retail market, right? So we saw in the autumn statement that there's um, an LTAF ISA, basically. So you can hold LTAF investments within the innovative finance ISA. It basically means re retail investors can gain access to these products 
within a tax efficient scheme. So they're not paying tax on any gains on it. But if you start to do that, if you start allowing retail investors to, to allocate to private markets, you, you've got to make sure that, that it's watertight, right? And it's well regulated. If you're just targeting pension funds, endowment funds, et cetera, they can keep their money in for decades. So the risks of liquidity, risks around valuations are different. That, that's why regulators around the world are getting more hot on this, essentially. So we've talked about the, the interest in, in private markets, but because of this new inflationary environment that mm. we find ourselves in, a lot of investors have been flocking to cash. Yep. Has cash kind of caused a problem for fund firms this year? I mean, fundamentally, because the, the risk-free rate has increased so much, um, you know, the rate that you're getting in a savings account at, at sort of circa 5% in, in mm. some accounts just means that it's a harder sell to, to go into equities. And outside of the magnificent seven mm. in, in, in the US, the performance hasn't been amazing over the last year to 18 months. And, you know, you've seen that, that a, a lot of people have just been allocating to cash. I think we'll talk, talk about this, this, this in a moment, but, um, you know, fund flows have been pretty tepid. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that has caused a, a problem for, for fund firms. I, I spoke sort of a, a couple of mo- a month or two ago to BlackRock's UK head of distribution, and he said that cash was essentially the biggest threat to fund firms. And that's coming from the juggernaut that is BlackRock. So if, yeah. if they're feeling the pinch, then it trickles down essentially. And and, and let, let's look at fund flows a little bit because you've, you've covered them kind of in anger this year. Yes. W- w- what's been happening? Well, I find that, you know, money market funds have basically proven one of the most, if not the most popular asset class yeah. this year. But unfortunately, they've proven the most popular at the expense of equity funds and fixed income funds. I think up until this month, actually, they'd had six, so equity funds had had six months of consecutive outflows with UK equity funds basically being the worst affected. Um, and, you know, fixed income funds have also been been losing a lot of money prior to December. They've also had four consecutive months um, of outflows. But yeah, as, as mentioned, they've seen inflows recently mm. this month. Now that inflation seems to be coming down, but it remains to be seen, you know, whether that kind of U-turn continues. What's been happening at home? What about UK equities? What are flows like? UK equity flows, unfortunately, continue to be dire. People don't see the the value. They think that UK stocks are way too undervalued and, um, you know, they can find better opportunities in the US, as you mentioned with the Magnificent Mm. Seven, in these growth opportunities, so I think the situation continues to be dire. More money's flowing out of these pension funds. Um, elsewhere, home bias is dead. Yeah. Um, so I think it will get to a point where it's just, it, it kind of levels out, hopefully. Yeah. But I just don't think that that point has, has, has ended. It, it is interesting. I think in, in, in acquid, active equities, you're seeing month on month outflows um, time after time in UK equities. There are some inflows happening with index funds, with with passive mandates. Mm. So I I guess it will be interesting to see what happens next year if sort of the the broader industry sees the UK equity equity market as just insanely cheap and then there's a lot of buy-in there. If it's sort of, there's this perception that it's 
bottomed out yeah. essentially but yeah there's pretty negative new music i mean especially after brexit etc it's it's pretty miserable i think at the moment for uk equities yeah just back on but back onto cash i was just wondering what what kind of this growth in in kind of these cash or money market funds what what what's been the result and what's happened with fund platforms yeah so that's an interesting one so you've got the likes of AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne. And despite we've been talking about flows being pretty tepid, they've been doing pretty well in terms of their profit margins because of cash on their platform. So they've had investors with cash sitting there and they haven't been paying the Bank of England rate. They have been making a pretty tidy margin (laughs) on, on that money just sort of sitting dormant, essentially. Now, as recent as a couple of weeks ago, the FCA has uh, not been too impressed by that and has accused them of essentially double dipping. Mm. So as, uh, that that means that they have been taking a, a charge for holding the funds on the platform um, and also not passing on the inter- interest rate to the end consumer. And when the FCA had a go at these platforms for doing so, those share prices of the big platforms started tanking. Even Aberdeen, which has a much smaller platform service um, on on its books, saw a decrease in its share price. A couple of hours after the announcement, AJ Bell released new new charge and yeah. new charging structures. So, I mean, th- that's going to be a big theme for those platforms in the next year. So, I think maybe the gravy train for them ha- has ended, so to speak. So, I think. We'll leave it there. And thank you so much for listening to The Welsh Show this year. Have a great Christmas and New Year. And we will see you back in January. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you very much. The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.